when you come to the campus, it's not that the campus necessarily changes. You know, the campus keeps going. So you have to find a way to be important to the campus and be part of the campus. I think that's probably a, a feeling that's shared across most folks who arrive on the campus. And I think it's exacerbated or amplified by or when someone comes in with identities that are not highly represented on campus, which was definitely the case for me. Natalie Daniels first came to UC Berkeley in 2009 as a transfer student from a community college in Arizona. A lot of the communication approaches I was exposed to, they're not communication approaches that are necessarily accepted or tolerated in a lot of professional and academic settings, um, perhaps because they're not the default or because folks just don't know that those communication styles exist and are valid. So really understanding that there's a certain knowledge set that's deeply valued by the, by the institution that then shapes the way we even communicate about our experiences. You're listening to Fiat Fox, a Berkeley News podcast. I'm Ann Bryce. Daniel spent the first few years of her life in Cayenta, Arizona. It's a small town that's part of the Navajo Nation. Her parents were educators on the reservation, and she's the second youngest of four sisters. And so my first experiences of life and everything I knew about my own sense of self and culture and experience was wrapped in my family, which had, we had our little bubble in our home there in Kayenta, um, and then surrounded by this deeply homogenous ancient culture and practice that really, really raised me and, and helped me learn what it meant to communicate and to share and to show affection and to express needs and to know who I am. Her mother comes from an impoverished agricultural family in the Midwest, and her father comes from indigenous and African-American lineage in Nashville, Tennessee. So my family's deeply mixed. Uh, we have a lot of different, we're, we're multi-heritage, so we've got a lot of different racial identities, a lot of different spiritual identities, different ethnic identities, national, uh, especially in terms of, of immigration and enslavement, national identities as well, uh, playing a role in our house. Paper trails are really hard with families that are mixed like ours, especially on my dad's side. That side of the family is descendant of the Atlantic slave trade. But the women in my family have, have used language even if it's not their language, they've used language as a tool to try to keep records via photographs. So we have all these photos dating back over a hundred years of family members. And on the backs of the photos, there's teeny tiny handwriting, beautiful penmanship cursive from top to bottom. There is not a a modicum of white space left on the back of the photographs because it was my family's attempt to record and reclaim our history. So we don't have paper records suggesting who we are or that we're real or exist. It's, it's just these photographs is it's the best trail we have to know where we come from. So the back of these photographs, it lists names, nicknames, marriages, children, birth dates, racial percentages, which is mostly due to like 
blood quantum and enslavement policies at the time. But there's also some short, quirky stories about who they are and what their favorite food was and why they divorced their first husband or whatever. Like there's that kind of stuff that really makes these people feel so human and reminds us that they are us and still in us in a lot of ways, even if history is telling us that's not true or telling us that it's not possible to know those things. Um, I definitely have my grandmothers to thank for that on both sides for holding that photo archive and maintaining it so well. It's an incredible resource for me that wouldn't exist without them fighting so hard to be able to learn a language that was never meant for them and and use it to document these things for me in the future. Her grandmother, Barbara, had her first child, who had become Daniels' father, when she was a teenager. She had three other kids and raised them all on her own. And she fought really hard to achieve a high school level of education. My grandmother is a person who has endured deeply segregated, oppressive circumstances in the South, um, specifically pre-civil rights. And these circumstances have impacted every aspect of her life, including her access to education and language and other learning opportunities that a lot of people, I think, take for granted. Um, But the very tool we suggest serves as the equalizer or serves as a tool of empowerment, which is language and and writing and literacy and all of these other pieces. That was a tool that has been weaponized against her, as well as historically withheld from her and other under-resourced Black and Indigenous people. Also, she has a traditional Nashville Southern accent what Daniels describes as a hearty, soulful twang. And Daniel says that because of the way her grandmother speaks, people have often dismissed what she has to say right off the bat. She's an incredible person with so many incredible things to say, and we would only benefit from listening, including myself. Like, I, every time that I get to hear her speak or share, I am floored. There's just so much wisdom held in one person. The concept that somehow there's a standard and a substandard language is really about power. That's Rose Wilkerson, a sociolinguist and lecturer in the Department of African American Studies at Berkeley. She has a PhD in linguistics and specializes in African American English. She taught a course a few years ago in the linguistics department at Berkeley called American Languages. We have a saying in linguistics. The difference between a language and a dialect is whoever has an army and a navy. In other words, who has socioeconomic and political power in the country? That will be the standard or the accepted mainstream form of English. So when you have any kind of perception about a person, the way that they speak, oh, this is a dialect or it's a substandard form of English, or it's a broken language. Actually, the way that the brain works and the way that human beings speak, they can't break a language. It, that's, that's impossible to do. Uh, in fact, uh, most sociolinguists don't like to use the term dialect because it's very derogatory. We call them a variety. And if you think about African-American English, it's a variety of English. All languages have structure. All languages have rules. Everything that we speak has a pattern. 
Um, most people don't understand that and they don't know that because they've been taught differently, right? Wilkerson explained that the reason there's a linguistic prejudice against people with Southern accents, like Daniel's grandmother has, comes from the outcome of the American Civil War. Well, who ended up losing out of that? The South. So their language, their culture, their etc. tends to be looked down upon. These are more ignorant people. These are more not very smart. And basically it's because they lost that war. If the South had won the Civil War, she says, the standard in the U.S. today would be Southern English. Think about what would happen, what would have, what the U.S. would have been like, linguistically speaking, in terms of what we would value. It would be a different story. So the standard would be Southern English. That's how that happens. When people are criticized for how they speak, says Wilkerson, like Daniels was when she got to Berkeley and how her grandmother has been throughout her life, it's about so much more than just the speech itself. Language is culture. You learn language from your parents. It is the language of love. It is the language of your home. It is the language of food. It is the language of music. So when you come into a situation where people devalue you know, who you are by the way you speak, I would say it cuts to the heart, right? You're discriminating against a person's culture and their language. You're making assumptions about them based upon uh, you know how you know how they're speaking. We need to have teachers that are trained that understand about not just language but but language perceptions and discrimination, because this again this is not something that we always talk about. We still carry these um, prejudices in our minds. If people really understood a language like they do from uh, the perception of linguistics, I think that would be the start of removing these perceptions about, you know, language somehow being deficient. In 2011, Daniels graduated from Berkeley with a bachelor's degree in psychology. She went to work as a medic in Alameda County and in foster care for the city of Oakland. In 2017, she came back to Berkeley to work at the Path to Care Center. It's the Campus Interpersonal Violence Center, where she focused on response and prevention to sexual assault, dating violence, domestic violence, and stalking. Recently, she took a job as a Cleary liaison, helping to make sure the campus is in compliance with the Cleary Act, a protection law that aims to provide transparency around campus crime policy and statistics. She says now that she's been entrenched in academic language for several years, she has a grasp on how academia prefers things to be said. But she doesn't want other people to go through what she did, a kind of painful assimilation in which she felt like her identity was deeply devalued. So looking back, what's the message I would say to my younger self? Um, I don't know that I would encourage my younger self to speak up more. I don't think that that is the case. I think the change I would make would, would be to encourage my younger self to, to recognize that as much as I feel like I have to learn from the institution and from the people around me, the people around me don't feel like they have just as much to learn from me, and that's not my fault. 
And I think that would be the thing that I would share back. Um, that the experiences and the way that I learned to navigate difficult, complex circumstances and environments in our society, that, that all of that still is a bed of wisdom and a bed of experience that is that is mine and it's valuable. And just because no one's asking what that experience is um, or asking me to write about it or asking me to talk about it, that that doesn't mean that it's that it's less valuable than the experiences that my peers and my faculty are sharing with me. It's a message she wants to share with all the students at Berkeley and anyone else on campus who feels like an outsider. That they belong and that Berkeley is better because of them. This is Fiat Vox, a Berkeley News podcast. I'm Ann Bryce, a podcast producer for the Office of Communications and Public Affairs. Next week, I'll be talking with Rita Lucarelli, an associate professor of Egyptology and a faculty curator of Egyptology at the Phoebe A. Hearst Museum of Anthropology. We'll be talking about the museum's mummified crocodile collection and what crocodiles meant to ancient Egyptian culture. You can subscribe to Fiat Vox, spelled F-I-A-T-V-O-X, and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. Also, check out our other podcast, Berkeley Talks, which shares lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.